episode 45 with writer Lovey Ajayi Jones. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with writer and professional troublemaker, Lovey Ajayi Jones. Never one to remain silent about what's on her mind, our conversation with Lovey is littered with sage advice, coated in humor with just a dash of Nigerian spice for good measure. Indeed, a recipe for trouble. The good kind. Spending the first nine years of her life in Nigeria, Lovey's family relocated to the windy and wintry Midwestern metropolis of Chicago, Illinois, where she realized quite quickly, like a West African Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, that she was not an Ogun anymore. Originally born Afelua Ajayi, she began to go by Lovette once enrolled in the American school system, understanding that even then, people aren't always ready to accept difference and that learned behaviors die hard. She also discovered the power of geography and the gaze, whereas in Nigeria, she was simply a Felua, while in the United States, she had become black, an identity she holds close and proudly wears. With dreams of becoming a doctor dashed by a failed chemistry score, Lovey began blogging in 2003 while simultaneously working in marketing and brand strategy. Awesomelylovey.com, a destination for all things culture, began gaining serious traction and by 2016, the New York Times estimated that Lovey's audience was well over 500,000 people across her Twitter and her blogging platforms. But it wasn't until Lovey had an encounter with theft that her point of view really came into focus. After confronting a writer about copying copious amounts of her work, she channeled that frustration into her first book, the New York Times bestseller, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. Now a media destination unto herself, Lovey launched the Jesus and Joloff podcast in 2018 with fellow Nigerian actress Yvonne Orji who is most famous for her starring role on Issa Rae's hit show, Insecure. Her most recent book, Professional Troublemaker, A Fear Fighter's Manual, was released in 2021 and also became a New York Times bestseller, along with a teen edition being released in late spring of 2022. Her latest podcast, Professional Troublemaker, highlights the stories of individuals who are committed to disrupting what is unjust for the greater good and can be heard wherever you receive your podcast, probably where you're listening to this one. Speaking of podcasts, we are loving reading your reviews and we appreciate them so much. If you haven't already, head over to Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing over here. We'd also like to get to know you better. Head to www.blackimagination.com survey 
and don't forget the www, and answer a few questions about yourself. It takes just a few minutes, but will help us in making sure we continue to address the needs of this beautiful community of Black Imagineers. You can also find the link at the top of our Instagram and Twitter, at Black Imagination. And now, the wacky wordsmith, the side-eye sorceress, and the witch of wit, Lovey Ajayi Jones. So, first of all, Lovey, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, I am so happy to have you here and excited to hop into this conversation. So, welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course, of course. So, uh, to start, I'd like to know, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Um, I would like to dedicate today's conversation to all the troublemakers out there, all the good troublemakers out there, people who are constantly disrupting for good and uh, sometimes feel like they're alone in doing it. So I hope they feel seen and I hope they feel heard. Ah, I love that. And you know what? That's actually like, let's hop, let's slide right into it. What is a troublemaker? What does it mean to be a troublemaker? Yeah, I think in in, in our world, which is full of injustice and unfairness, and oftentimes it's a dumpster fire, a troublemaker is somebody who is fighting against that, who is fighting against the status quo, the systems of oppression, they're the people who are in the rooms, who are saying the hard things that need to be said. They're the ones who challenge your uncle when they make an inappropriate joke. They're the friend who is not afraid of having a tough conversation with you. You know, They're the colleague who will challenge an, an idea that you have in a meeting because they don't think it's thoughtful. So I think troublemakers are the people who exist in the world knowing that in all its flaws that they can be a part of the positive change. So they do the hard things. They say the hard things as a life habit. Yeah, you know, I, what, I, what I love about, you know, this notion of, 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 of troublemaking or, uh, you know, stirring the pot, so to speak. Um, it, and one thing I found in, in sometimes spaces in which I try to make a little bit of trouble is like sometimes the situation is not like a teachable moment. You know what I mean? Like sometimes the person that needs to be addressed or even the uh, the system that you're trying to address, like they're not in a place for change. So how, how does one navigate that? Like how does one discern yeah. like when, when is it appropriate? Like when is this a space or is that not even a consideration? I think it is a consideration, but you shouldn't speak up just because you know what the impact will be or just because you know how it will be received. You know, there are absolutely rooms where your voice matters, but it won't be listened to. There are times when you know it's not a teachable moment. There are gonna be times when you know, it's not gonna do anything if I say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. And I think what matters is understanding that your voice shouldn't be dictated by how the room will receive it. Because if you use that as the criteria for speaking up, you'll never say anything. 
because if we're constantly looking at other people to be the barometers for like our own integrity, we won't ever speak the truth in the way they should. So I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is you speaking up, remove yourself from your attachment to the, to the way it will be received. Remove yourself from the idea and the expectation that just because you're speaking truth, somebody's going to love it or they'll hail it or they will listen to it. Understand that you speaking up is more of a matter of maintaining your integrity and also being who you say you are or want to be, right? So oftentimes you just have to know that, look, I might say it, they might not like it. I might even get punished for it, but the importance of what I have to say is bigger than my fear of how it will be received. Mm. Mm. I, you, you, you mentioned, um, you know, this phrase of, you know, who, who you know yourself to be or who you want yourself to be. Um, you know, and I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who, especially in this time of COVID, like are asking themselves some hard questions. One particularly around like, who do they want to be, you know? And you start your book with the chapter, like know yourself. Yeah. So what is that process? Like in a world of, you know, and I'm sure you, you understand this as well of like so much distraction right? Like intentional distraction. How does one begin that process of even knowing who they truly want to be? I guess in the quietude, like, who are you when nobody's watching? You know, what convicts you? In the quiet moments, what do you regret? A lot of us regret not saying something in the room that we were in or letting somebody walk away without us giving them the clear idea of how we were feeling, whether it's a loved one, whether it's a friend, whether it's a colleague, whether it's good or bad. You know, sometimes you'll replay a conversation in your head and you think about, ah, I wish I would have said that thing. You know, in those times, nobody can convict you but you, right? Who are you when there's no applause that's gonna come from an action that you take? Um, I think for me, just always being clear what I value has allowed me to stay in integrity, you know, knowing my core values, knowing that I am somebody who holds honesty in in high regard. So if if that's the case, who am I not to be honest with the people I know in the rooms I'm in? If I say I value honesty from other people, I have to model honesty myself. If I say I value generosity from other people, I have to be generous myself. So those, that clarity gives me the conviction to, to say something in a room that's tough. And I think knowing ourselves is important because this world will try to tell us who we are. We, we will be abused out of who we are, insulted out of who we are. How do we present that? I mean, prevent that. How do we prevent that? It's by like knowing who and whose you are knowing what ground you stand on, knowing what you value, what you would fight for, all of that, I think help mitigate the times when you get told you're not enough or you're not, you're not ready for something or that you're just not lovable. 
it will help you say, mm, that's what you think. I'm not going to absorb it. It will let you wipe up off what is not yours to receive. It'll allow you to stand taller, especially in moments of chaos. That knowledge of and that clarity of everything about you that you hold dear, it'll keep you standing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what was, what was, you, you mentioned a couple of key f- phrases. One, like, you know, holding yourself in integrity. Um, you know, defining your values um, and knowing what you hold to be valuable. Um, what was that process like for you? Like, what was the process of actually listening to yourself and discovering what your values were and what you hold, what would, what would keep you in integrity? What was that process like? You know, I actually don't think it was a cognizant cognizant process that I went through like I didn't go through like I have to know what my values are I just paid attention to how I operate in the world and how I've been operating since I was little I've always been somebody who's been really honest I'm talking five-year-old lovey who's speaking right now she was also super honest it didn't matter how much trouble she got into she'll let you know how she was feeling you know whether you're a grown-up or her age and I don't necessarily think we have to go discovering who we are. I think we just have to relearn that if we've left who we are behind because the world has somehow beat it out of us. And I think my privilege is that I never lost who I was. So I never had to rediscover her. I never had to go relearn what I held dear. I never had to relearn my voice, my dreams, my hopes, because I just always kept them, right? And uh, that is a privilege that I say a lot of people don't have because, yeah, as we're growing up, people will sometimes tease us, you know, and we'll start burying that very true part of ourselves. Or our parents, God bless them, might do something the way they raise us that gives us the message that we need to be different. And I'm thankful for my mom who never try to tell me I was anybody but who I was never try to take my voice even when I was using it against her right like you know I would say respectful but I'd be like that's not fair you know seven-year-old me telling her that's not fair I didn't get punished for that I didn't get in trouble I'd still get in trouble for my mouth because I'd be saying something crazy to somebody but when I stood up for myself I didn't get further punished for it by her so let me know that, okay, I can even tell people who are bigger than me how I'm feeling. Um, and I think I carried that with me, you know, throughout my schooling, even when they teased me for my Nigerian accent, I was like, I'm still going to be my jollof rice to school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think, yeah, my process of being this person was an insistence on never not being this person. Mm, I love it. That's actually a really great segue. Let's rewind. Let's take mm-hmm. it back. Let's take it back to the continent. Um, who is Lovey? Like, what was this 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 journey? You you grew up in Nigeria. You moved to the states when you're nine, if I'm mm-hmm. not cor- if mm-hmm. I'm correct, and you land in Chicago. 
Yeah. What was that process? What was that process of coming from, arriving to, and like discovering what? I mean, at nine, you're basically a fully formed human being. Um, so coming to the U.S., we came in the winter time too. Going from the to Chicago to the cold. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Definitely shell-shocked by that. But I'd already been to the U.S. before in the wintertime. Um, we actually, which is also why I thought we were going on vacation. I didn't realize we were moving. Because we'd visited before, you know. And for me, the what let me know where we were staying was when I got enrolled in school. And I remember being pushed into the classroom and the teacher asking my name and, like, telling me to introduce myself to the students. And I instantly knew that my name, which is Ifeo Lua, was too different. It means God's love. I knew they weren't going to be going to pronounce it properly. So I made the split second decision to introduce myself as Lavette, which is um, a nickname that my aunt used to call me. It's like nine-year-old me instantly was like, mm, protect yourself and here's how. Don't use your regular name. So I started going by Lavette. I still had the strong accent, of course, being the new girl from Nigeria. So I just started listening to my classmates. Like I listened with, with intention. And I was like, I could talk like that. <laughs> and I started mimicking how they were speaking. And that's how I lost my accent, um, which I had lost by most of, by the beginning of high school, I had lost most of my accent. So I assimilated in that way, but I still held very strongly to my culture. You know, I still brought jollof rice to school, even though the kids would be like, what is that? It smells different. I'd be like, I could have brought sandwiches. And I think I even tried one time to bring a sandwich to school. It was like a tuna sandwich. And literally by like two o'clock, I was like, I'm hungry again. I miss my rice. Like, and I think from that, that point on, I was like, if I bring a sandwich, I'm definitely still bringing rice with me because the sandwich is my appetizer. So it was like, even, even me who knew that, oh, you might get teased for that. I still insisted on doing it. So I was like, I don't care what y'all say. This one I'm gonna eat and y'all gonna have to deal. <laughs> and I did. So it's interesting. I always kind of protected my culture, protected my background, um, not from a place of shame, but from a place of, um, it was almost like my sacred space when I was out in the world. Cause I went back home and I was doing my regular thing. I was still eating pounded yam and a goosey at home. I was still speaking Yoruba at home. So it's like I had these two lives, but I reconciled it pretty easily. I reconciled it pretty easily. Kids adapt also that when you're nine, you adapt very quickly. So yeah, and then I started college and um, I basically started writing my freshman year after I failed chemistry because I was supposed to be a doctor. And uh, my blog is what, so I dropped, Lovette became Lovey. Here we are. That's the Cliff Notes version. But yeah, it's been a journey. I love that. I'm going to come back to where you just left off, but I want to circle back real, real, real quick. Um, and first of all, like, I know, you know, you're a writer, you're out here in this world, but I'm also looking forward to like your comedy special. Like, I'm just looking forward to like the Netflix comedy that, special, no and I'm like, 
please. Like, you're talking. I'm like, Dario, please do not laugh at this entire fucking interview. Okay, so. <laughs> I have been told that it was so funny because I have never really called myself a comedian, nor do I necessarily think I'm one. Mm-mm. Baby, but people, I don't know. <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, at least like writing for a comedy show or something. Anyway, <laughs> um, so if if you're listening, um, I will put Lovey's information in the show notes. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, what was this like? Okay, so you you've come to the states in Chicago, um, you know, Nigerian, assimilating quite easily, but at some point. I'm sure you realize other people don't see you maybe as like just Nigerian, but there's this other thing called like black. Yes. That you just become. Yes. <laughs> like, which is strange. What was that experience like? Like, when did you, when did that even come into your purview? And like, what was that experience like? How did you negotiate that? Yeah. Well, the thing is, being Nigerian, coming from a country of people who are all dark skin, well, there are, we're all different tones, but we're all black. When black is a default, you don't have to define it, right? So I never had to call myself black until I came to the US because everybody in Nigeria is black. So of course we're all black. Why we gotta talk about being black, right? It's basically being like, everybody on earth is human. We gotta talk about being human. No, coming to the US and, no longer being the default was probably the biggest shift because it was the first time that I looked around and I was different. It was the first time that people didn't know my name or my name felt strange to them. Even Ajayi, which is my last name, Ajayi, which is spelled just like it's, you know, it looks just like it's spelled and people will just make it ugly. I'm like, what? That's the easiest last name in the face of the earth. Ajayi, like right there, it's right there. There's no tricks. So, I had to learn what it was, what it meant to be black, like what it meant to now have to define myself by my skin tone, because that wasn't a thing. That's not a thing in Nigeria. Um, and it was a learning because again, with the diaspora, you know, we're all this globally connected people who have been disconnected on purpose. So learning about the slave trade for the first time when I came to the U.S., Absolutely, absolutely. They didn't teach about the slave trade in Nigeria in my school because we were learning about the Biafran War, the Civil War in Nigeria 40 years before, right? We also think about the fact that our lives are bubbles. So we think surely everybody else knows about my bubble. So coming to the US, my bubble was Nigeria. So I actually didn't know anything about the US. And, um, it was definitely a journey to understanding how little we are connected and how much they've done so much to separate black people in America and black people from everywhere else. Um, so I actually made it my point after, after high school, I doubled down on learning more about black American history. I took a US, a black woman in US class. That was my favorite one in college that I actually still kept keep in touch with my professor. Um, I went semesters where I took like five, I'll take like four or five race and ethnicity courses to, to deepen my understanding, to make sure that I was a person who was growing in knowledge. Because again, 
you come to this country and you know you think everything's cool because you didn't hear about it and then you find out the fact that this country was built on the back and backs of black and brown people yeah <laughs> you know it's it's interesting also because you said that there's so much that we have not been taught about you know each other but i think it's also really beautiful to see how much remains you know after 400 years how how much of african culture actually remained you know in the cuisine in you know hair braiding in the dances like how much st- like still was translated um even though it has been systematically uh designed uh uh or erased um yeah and, and, and I, I, you know yeah, i think no, the diaspora yeah. i think one of the gifts of the diaspora is the fact that blackness is undilutable right like no matter where you go in the world if you are black you will find somebody in that country who looks like one of your cousins who reminds you of an auntie or your mama or your brother You know what I mean? Like, no matter how much they try to break Black people around the globe, we still hold on to each other and ourselves. So yeah, like I've been to all different corners of the globe. I've been to South Africa. Some of the struggles there are literally parallel to what's happening here to to the point where if you go to the, is it the Henry Peterson Museum? There's a protest sign from, I think either Joburg or Cape Town from 1977 that says, hands up, don't shoot. Like, so us understanding that our struggles are parallel, our beauty is the same, we are all valuable, we are all lovable, we're all worthy, we've got to fight for each other. We have to bring our joy to each other. And for me as a writer and as a thinker, it's been really important in my writing to make sure that I'm serving as a somewhat of a bridge in that way. As somebody who has her feet on both continents, you know, born in the motherland, raised here home is here and there for me so as a nigerian american writer as a black woman i think it's important that that is reflected in my writing you know that's why i honor um both how i write and those who come before me to allow me to write you know as a woman who came to the u.s understanding the privilege of having those roots and then honoring the people who were here, who fought, who were able to allow me to now migrate here and succeed. All of that is important in my journey, in my plight, as a thinker, as a writer, as a visible person, I'm always making sure that I'm not speaking from a place of closed-mindedness. I'm always making sure I'm growing my way of thinking. And um, one of the biggest titles that makes me most proud is Black. Mm. Hmm. Mm. Um. You know, you you mentioned earlier. Um. You know, you spoke a bit about your mother, and I believe in professional troublemaker, you dedicated to your grandmother. Um. Mm-hmm. You know, what are some of the most powerful lessons these women and even your father have taught you? Right. Like these very pivotal. Uh, figures in your life what are some of the lessons that they've left you with um my grandmother taught me what it's like to be a 
person who shows up in this world and takes up space without apology and who shows that you can be loved in spite of and because of it, especially that because. My grandmother showed me that you don't have to bow your head when you walk into a room, black woman or not, like you belong there and you deserve to be celebrated because she celebrated herself all the time. Okay, my grandmother celebrated herself constantly and I loved it because she was so, she wouldn't apologize for taking up space. And um, for me, it was just such an important thing to watch growing up that I didn't realize that I was watching so much of. Seeing her be this person gave me permission to be who I am today. Gave me permission to walk with my head up, you know, allowed me to know that like, I belong in any room. So, I mean, the lessons they've taught me are countless. So I don't even know where to start. Uh, you said you said in, in an interview, um, I'm drawing a blank on where from, but you said like your grandmother had the ability to make a home out of every room she walked into. Mm-hmm. What? She did. You know, what, what, what does that look like? You know, you, cause you, we say things like, you know, phrase like taking up space. What does that look like? You know, what is that? How do we define what it means to take up space? Mm. To take up space, space is to exist comfortably. You know, there are times when we will walk in somewhere and we are looking around wondering whether we belong we are like, ooh, am I smart enough to be in here? She never did that. Not that I saw. Whether she was calling the cab or whether she was at her hospital appointment or whether she walked into a room with dignitaries or whether she walked to church, I think she approached every room the same way. I didn't, I didn't really ever see her questioning herself in that way. She didn't waste her time in that. She'd be like, I'm here. What's up? And she'll see who's around. She'll talk to any and everybody there. She walks to anybody. What's your name? Tell me, tell me about yourself. Just out of the blue. Every time, every time we would take cabs together, because this is of course before Uber times, because I'd um, have to escort her to the hospital if she has like her appointments or if she wants to go to the store. And I'll be like, fine, I'm gonna go with her. And at that point, all you have to do is take Ubers. I mean, uh, cabs. So we get in the cab without fail. Every time my grandmother will have a full conversation with the cab driver where by the end of the trip, she knows where he's from, what his mom's name is, his family's name is, uh, what his wife does. And I promise you, we would not have to pay for the cab most of the time. By the time we get to where we're going, they feel like she's their mom and she'll go to like pay them and they'll go, no, 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 I can't take your money, no. Every time I'd be like, is this a hustle? And I knew it wasn't a hustle because she would insist on trying to pay them. She'd be like, no, 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 no. I have to pay you. Like, you, you, it was a great ride. Thank you so much. You got us here safely. God bless you. And they would refuse to take her money because all of a sudden they felt like she was family. And it happened over and over again. It did not matter where she was in. So yeah, she made a home out of every room. She made family out of every person she came across. She, yeah, it was, it was actually fascinating to to watch back then I didn't think about it like that now when I think about it I'm like that's a gift Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was as you were telling the story, I was like, mm, this sounds like a hustle, but she That's got it. I was it. like, is this? A, <laughs> but it was so earnest because each like she would have the money in her hand already because she would also like add like extra because she she would make sure she wants to tip them well because she'd be like, oh my god, give this to your kids. So when they wouldn't accept her money, she would. We would spend five minutes doing back and forth. As the person is refusing to take her money and she's insisting they got to take, the person's like, no, I can't take. No, 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 you have to take it. I want you to make sure you give this to your kids and your wife. No, 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 I can't take it, ma. Like, and I'll be sitting there looking like this, like, oh, can we go? It's, one of y'all got to do just something. Yeah. <laughs> is the meter off? <laughs> and there'll be other times when we'll, we'll get out the cabin before we get out, she'll slide me the money and tell, them to, and tell me to leave it there. She'd be like, no, 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 no. She'd, she'd be like, just, just put it there. And yeah. So just watching her in that way, just this deeply generous, deeply loving, deeply honest woman who everybody considered a mom to them when they, once, once they met her one time, it was a lesson to me. Like, yeah, you can, you can have a spirit of giving, you can have a spirit of honesty and still thrive because mm. of all of those things. Mm, I love that. You know, so so kind of fast forwarding to the creation of your blog, you know, you you, you mentioned that you started blogging, you know, in the early aughts. Um, and, you know, you also mentioned in your in your work that you you had a corporate job and you lost it and you started writing really kind of full time, even though you didn't consider yourself a writer at the time. Um and we actually had a previous guest, uh, Kimberly Drew. I don't know if you know Kimberly. Yes. Um, but she also kind of got her career started with a blog, right? Just like her ideas in the world, her passions, yeah. her interests in the world with no end game in sight, right? Yeah. Um, and I think in this time as well, like in the pandemic, there are so many people who are at a place of a pivot, right? Or I like to say expansion, right? Like at an expansion point. Like talk to us about like navigating that space, right? Because you you went to undergrad, you studied psychology, you're working a corporate job no longer, and you're just putting ideas on a, you know, a weblog. Is what it was called at the time, um, not to de- not, not to date ourselves, um, but there was something else waiting for you. Like, what was that process like to navigate that quote unquote pivot? Yeah, I think for me, not knowing I was even navigating much was a gift. You know, I didn't think about it as I was navigating something. I was just trying to figure myself out. I was just trying to know what was next, and I think. So when I started my blog in 2003, which was my freshman year in college, it was just this diary that we all had online. You know, None of us were thinking it was anything but just like this cute thing that kept us busy in between procrastinating for classes. And when I graduated and I deleted and I started awesomelylovey.com, it was because I had fallen in love with writing outside the classroom as I was writing this blog all these years. So that was 2006 that I started Awesomely Lovey. And with my full-time job, again, I never thought writing was anything but a hobby because it just felt too impractical to think about it as anything but. 
it felt too illogical and far-fetched. Like writers are Toni Morrison and, you know, Maya Angelou and Zora Neale Hurston. Those are writers. What I was doing was just putting some thoughts behind a computer screen. So yeah, when I got laid off my job, it wasn't me being like, thank you universe, you're making me do this thing. I was basically like, I know I'm laid off. I'm gonna go get a new job. All right, so I'm gonna be on Indeed and I'm gonna be on Monster. Shout out to those who remember Monster. And I'm gonna put my resume up. But in the meantime, I'm gonna write in this little blog thing that I'm still doing. And at one point I remember thinking like, you know, maybe maybe you'll get a job quicker if you just stop messing with this blog. Like, mm. keep the same energy <laughs> and looking for your job, okay? And I remember every time I'd wanna quit like, or say, you know, let this thing go, I would always get a note from somebody who's reflecting what my blog has done to them or done for them. You know, like there was one night where I was like, you need to just stop and just go find you a full-time job that has benefits and keep it moving. And I remember I got a note from somebody saying like the first time in six months that they had laughed intentionally when they were going through a major depressive episode was when they were reading something I wrote. You know, and I remember one that was like somebody telling me that they um, they were in the waiting room as their mom got chemotherapy. And the reason they weren't crying was because they were reading my something foolish I said. And it, it was basically kind of like God being like, I need you to pay attention. I need you to not stop doing this thing. But my blog took on a life of its own and opened doors that I didn't even realize existed, let alone thought I would have the key to it. Um, and I just never had a chance to get another job. It was like more and more things started happening as I started honoring this calling to write. More opportunities started coming, more money started coming. And I finally had to accept one day that you are a writer. This is, this is, this is, this is the job for you. And uh, stop trying to quit it. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Um, you what I love about that story is that, you know, I think it speaks to a couple of key, key elements. One is like just the act of doing just action, right? Action okay. towards your passion, okay. right? Even if it's a blog, right? Like even if it's just... I don't even consider myself a writer. I'm just putting these words on page. I'm just speaking into a void, right? So that's like two, right? You were speaking into this void that you saw uh, mm-hmm. in what in whatever you came across, right? Through the lens of humor, which is amazing. But it wasn't until like it really became about service, mm. you know, that it became bigger than you that drew you past any identity that you had previously you know or even conceptually around like being a writer and that's what like opened these doors and created this incredible incredible career that I can't not wait to dive into even more because like what was that transition from going to a blog to then like being a New York Times best-selling writer like I mean what Come on. I think being able to use our gifts out loud in the world is a form of service because 
if it's a gift, that means it's something that you carried with you innately and been able to share with other people is absolutely a gift. You know, you hone it over time, but like when people ask me how I come up with half the stuff I come up with, I'm like, I don't know. There's no real system. It just drops in my head. So how I went from blogger to New York Times bestseller. So once I took it seriously that I was a writer, I started doing more and more writing of like, I started getting columns in newspaper, in, in magazines. I started working with brands. And I remember um, in 2014, it was August, 2014, a journalist plagiarized my work. And I put journalists in quotation marks. And I remember waking up that day and having all these messages from people who read my work and saying, this sounds like you, but it doesn't have your name on it. Because my audience knows my voice, they know my writing and because it's somewhat singular. And I went to check and I was like, surely enough, this dude had taken like three paragraphs of my work. And I remember like going off on social about how like, you cannot do this to, to people. This is like basic stuff. And I dragged the dude so hard that I, I was like, I'm gonna go take a nap. I'm gonna go take a nap because I need a break. When I woke up, he had sent me an email saying like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. And I remember I wrote a tweet that said, is there not a limited edition handbook on how to be, a, like how not to be terrible at being a human being? And I instantly went, oh, snap. I should write that book. So that day I literally went and like started writing down a brainstorm of like, okay, what would this book look like? A couple of months later, I got an email from a book agent. I hadn't told anybody that I had this book idea, but I got this email from this agent who was like, I read your work, I read your blog. I think it's amazing. I think there's a book here. Let's talk. Well, a month after that, I end up signing with that book agent. And then I told him, oh yeah, by the way, I have my idea. Three months after that, which is February, 2015, I finished my book proposal. A month after that, March, 2015, I got my book deal, my first book deal. Uh, five months after that, seven months after that, I turned in my first manuscript, my first draft. Congratulations. I mean, hit it. A year after that, the book came, comes out and instantly hits the New York Times bestseller list, which changed my life, changed everything. And um, here we are. I've written my second book, instantly hit the Times list. Fun fact, I got my second book deal on the third anniversary of my first book. So my first book came out September 13th, 2016. I'm judging you to do better manual. I got the book deal for Professional Troublemaker, the Fear Fighter Manual on September 13th, 2019. I was like, wow, that's poetic. <laughs> yeah, that's some, uh, what is that, Virgo energy? Um, <laughs> yes, my your book, book has is Virgo. A Virgo. I'm a Capricorn, <laughs> and my and my book has Virgo energy. And uh, we'll have somebody do that chart. 
Right. <laughs> my books chart. Oh my gosh. That would be hilarious, actually. But you know, like that's a like that's amazing. Um, you know, when and 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 I know sometimes moments happen, right? Like in life where you start moving in a direction and then life meets you halfway, and then you're like, oh shit, here we go. Let's go. So, like, who did you have to become? in that process, right? Going from blogger, but not self-identified writer to self-identified writer to New York Times bestselling author, now twice, right? Like there is an iterative internal process that has to clock as well. Who did you have to become from 2006 to 2016? I had to become the best version of myself. Um, who I am is still very much who I was then, but way more thoughtful, way more mature, way more intentional. Um, but always true. I think people who knew me in college would still be like, yeah, no, she's still the same person. Um, which is an ultimate compliment in that way. But I've grown tremendously because I know things now that I definitely didn't know 15 years ago that if I knew 15 years ago would have probably made my journey easier. You know, I know people now who have allowed me to double down on myself I am surrounded by people who are like me that they're troublemakers they are disruptors they're women who are purpose-driven and doing it authentically so who I've had to become I've just been I've just become the best version of myself each 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 year I think I'm better than the last year as a human as a writer as a sister as a friend um yeah, I don't think, I think we're sometimes afraid that we're going to have to change everything about ourselves if we succeed, but we don't have to, we don't have to, we just have to hone certain things because we got here because of who we are. So why change that person all of a sudden to people go, I don't know who that is. You got here because of who you are. So when you get there, don't get brand new. Mm. Mm. And, and, and to double tap on that, I mean, like not even necessarily like changing but like when you say like be the best version of myself, like what are what like what are those things? Like I needed to become more disciplined. I needed to eat healthier. I needed to cultivate relationships. You know, like what 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 was what were those small tactical leaps? I'm 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 kind of double tapping on it because, you know, some people just stuck, right? And they don't really understand like what those tangible like daily practices right are that keep one in quote-unquote integrity with oneself and what that allows for you know I want to be able to be like oh I wake up and I journal every morning and I pray and I read my you know and I meditate I don't I work out you know some people are like I work I work out at 5 a.m I don't I don't I'm like I'd be lying if I said that. Mm -mm. I think um, I think I'd, one thing I can say is I am disciplined with my craft. 
I write. I'm a writer because I write. Not because I necessarily wrote the book. Yeah, that's cool. But I'm writing something every day. Um, whether it's a paragraph or an essay or a status, I'm writing. I'm using my words. Um, what else? I am a better friend because I am, I know what it, what is required to support me. So I'm able to show up for my friends in a different way. That's the other thing that we can't deny is on this journey of success. It's your hard work is gonna get you far, yes. The relationships you build are gonna get you further, okay? You can be the most talented person on the face of the earth, but if you get along with nobody, if you are trusted by nobody, if nobody will vouch for you in a room, your talent and your hard work won't make you move forward. They won't bring you into that room. So me today, I've, I've always known that a little bit, but me to, today, the way I operate is by making sure that I am feeding my relationships like intentionally feeding my relationships, sending people tokens of appreciation, saying thank you, checking in real quick, contacting my mentors just to say hi. Um, all of those things have done wonders for my career. Mm. Mm. I, I, I love that. And you <clears throat> kind of going back to, um, you know, your books, you, you say that courage is a choice yeah. Not a trait. Um, and it makes me think of Maya Angelou's quote, um, where she says, of all of the virtues, mm -hmm. courage is the most important because without courage, you cannot practice any of the others without yeah. any consistency. And so yeah. in thinking about courage, how does one cultivate courage? Mm. Right. Because I, if, you, if it's a trait, I also believe it's a practice you know, how to show up in a room over and over. How does one cultivate courage? So I think courage is a habit. It is a commitment to doing what feels hard. So it's not saying that like, okay, you did something hard today. Yes, that was a courageous moment. But how do you have a courageous life? You have to do it over and over again. So you cultivate courage by understanding that it's a choice. Like, I think people see somebody like me who is bold, who shows up in the world and they go, oh, of course you can be courageous. But I'm like, no, no, um, I'm choosing that every day that I decide I'm gonna say something that might feel tough for other people to hear. I'm choosing courage when I decide to say yes to something that feels bigger than me, where I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm gonna do it right. That's a choice to say yes. You know, I'm choosing courage every time I tell a friend, like, let's have a tough conversation. So the cultivating of courage is choice, is commitment. It is, to your point, discipline. You know, and I firmly believe that there is no courage in the absence of fear. If it is easy, it's not courageous or brave. So when you say, oh, I did that really hard thing, that's courageous. If you're like, yeah, I mean, it's whatever. 
then it's really not, which is why we have to constantly push ourselves past our comfort zones, because what's going to be scary today will not be scary in two months. In a year, you look back at it and be like, I, I was ever scared of that thing or that situation. So again, like everything else is dynamic. You know, courage doesn't just look like one thing. It looks like you in whatever space that you are in, whatever room that you are in, making decisions that feel risky, aren't guaranteed to go well, but are important enough for you to take the risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you speak about, uh, you speak about, you know, fear, like, you know, facing fear. Um, how do you define fear and its role in one's life? I think fear is a universal emotion that we, sh- we need to be less afraid of. We should be less afraid <laughs> of fear because okay. we think when we have it, it's telling us to stop, go back. I think fear, whenever you're feeling afraid, it's usually a growth opportunity. It is a signal that your comfort zone is being burst open. But I'm like, you know what? I would rather be afraid in a studio apartment than a three bedroom. Because the other thing about our comfort zones is usually when you're being asked to come out of it, it means the zone is already too small. Like, it's like somebody telling you, okay, you need a new pair of shoes. It's because you outgrew your last pair of shoes, but you're like, I still want to wear them because I'm familiar with them. Meanwhile, your feet hurt because you're walking around in shoes that are too small. That's how our lives are when we are choosing to stay in our comfort zone. That's too small for us already. It's, it's what happens when we stay in a position that is junior to us. You already know you deserve to be in a bigger box, bigger position, a bigger space, but you're staying with the familiar. So fear's job in that moment is to be a red flag for you that it's probably time for you to lean into the bigger box. It's probably time for you to move forward and go into the space that will hold you now. I would rather be more uncomfortable in a three bedroom than a studio apartment. So if I'm going to be uncomfortable, let me be uncomfortable in the bigger space than in the smaller one that is like squeezing me tight. And I think that's how we need to kind of approach that. Yeah, I love, I never really thought of that. Like fear, um, you know, cloaking itself as familiarity you know and 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 i think because fear can maybe hide behind these other kind of sensations like how do we even identify that it's fear and the reason i ask that question is you know and you're a it's so funny we actually are both psych majors i forgot to talk about that yes <laughs> uh, yeah so let's let's get yeah let's go off um but like you know, sometimes dealing with, 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 with other, you know, human beings or wanting to show up for other human beings and be there and support them, a lot of times, like, I think they don't even realize, and we, and, w- and when I say they, I mean we, because I'm a part of this too, don't even realize that it's fear that's keeping us from the thing, right? Instead of saying, I'm afraid, we say, I love this apartment so much, you know, or, you know, I love this job. I love my coworkers. It's so cute to, you know, work is so close. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 
And how I do, think, so but I think it's, it's, I think it's okay to even say, I am kind of afraid, but I'm gonna do it anyway. You know what I mean? Like taking the shame out of just feeling the fear is okay. You, it's okay for you to be afraid. I th- actually think it's okay. And I think the vulnerability of even being able to say, yeah, no, that thing scares me. Is it opens doors for other people to know that like, oh, I can be safe here. Like I don't have to put on the fake face. You know, I can say I'm afraid. And I tell people all the time, like, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah no, no, no. I'd be afraid about a bunch of these things that I do or say, but I know that I have to do it because if I don't do it, I'm going to feel convicted about not doing it. So I'm not, I don't want us to stop saying we're afraid. I actually want us to normalize saying it because it is one of the most natural emotions. It is what keeps us from jumping off a mountain without a parachute, right? That same thing is also going to be what keeps us from applying for a new job that we think is above our pay grade. So being able to actually be honest in that way, hey, I was actually afraid when I applied for this job, but I know I qualify for it. I know I'd be good at it. And there's power in that. It actually creates more trust when we're able to be that type of honest. Mm, mm, mm. And and what what are like some what are some words that one can say to themselves to realize that I'm actually not about to jump off a mountain without a parachute. I'm just applying for a job <laughs> that I think is above my pay grade, but correct, right? But like you know, um, body-wise, your body's responding to it in the same way as if you're at the edge of a cliff when you're really just like at the edge of you know increasing your your tax liability, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, you know that. I think also comes down to you being honest about. What is truly on the line? Like, why are you afraid of this thing? Are you afraid of the consequence to come? Do you think you're going to get fired if you ask for this new job or apply for this new job? What are you afraid of? And if the thing happens, can you deal? Because what ends up happening is we attach all these apocalypse scenarios to our fears. We'll think about all the bad things that could happen as opposed to thinking about what if the best case scenario happens to your point of the imagination, our imagination for catastrophic events is endless. In one second, we'll think about 10 ways that this one situation can go disastrous. But then when you ask us all the ways it can go really well, we might come up with one example. So we reserve our imagination for catastrophe. And I'm like, how about if we have the same type of gumption to think about how well it could go, the vision for the best case scenario. You know, what if you're thinking, yeah, maybe I could get fired for applying for a new job? Or you're thinking, what if this new job could transform my, my, my career, my financial life? It could change my family's ability to do what we want to do. It can allow me to pursue my dreams. Instead, we're like, ah, but if I apply and I might get fired, we get stuck in that. And we let the fear take us out of what is actually more likely, which is you might get the job and now be able to do something that you've never been able to do in the world. Maybe go on a vacation this quarter or go to a country you've always had on your bucket list or help your mom retire. You know, there's so many ways that our lives can go amazing, but we don't typically think about those ways. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, you're so right. Um, you know, and I, I love a quote that you have in your book, um, uh, Professional Troublemaker, Fear Fighter Manual. Now, for those of you listening, this is chapter six. Um, and you say, and I quote, we need to prioritize the truth mm. because the world is full of things to point out, injustices to fight, systems to dismantle. If we're not starting with honesty, how do we know the problems we need to tackle? You don't lie your way into an equitable world. We got to find our individual integrity and our collective candor for the greater good and start by being honest in whatever space we're in. So, like, how would you define the space we're in today as it relates to systems of digital design, you know, and how individual voices shape those spaces? The state, I think we're in a space of innovation right now. I almost feel like we're in the gold, second, with another golden age of content, whether it's television, whether it's written word, people just feel inspired. And I think what's happening is the fact that the world is a dumpster fire. The world is a dumpster fire and artists are doing their best work possible. You know, thinkers are critiquing the world in great ways. There are some incredible TV shows out right now because I think the human spirit responds to chaos by trying to cope and art allows us to cope. So. There's a lot of great coping mechanisms out right now. <laughs> you know, and I think for me, it also inspires me to do my best work. Um, since the pandemic started, I think, I think I've been funnier just because I've just been pointing out how ridiculous the world is and there's no shortage of things to point out. Okay, like, I think I've done some of my best work in the last two years. <laughs> so, but again, I think it's just like the human spirit figures out ways to manage when it's under pressure and how we're managing is we're creating, which is inspiring. Yeah. I mean, you're, you know, I love, I mean, love this idea of like, you know, the world is a dumpster fire. Um, But also this quote about like being able to speak honestly, right. Meaning that we need to identify what we're even looking at, right? Like Mm -hmm. how do we even define it? And so, like, how do we navigate what is true versus the truth? You know, and how do we differentiate? I don't know. Because things think, are coming at us yeah. from, from now, it seems like every angle, right? From up and down and in between, right? Yeah. And so, and, you know, in this quote, you know, we, you speak about, like, not only starting with, with honesty, but knowing what you're actually fighting yeah and so how do we sift and sort with everything the truth is subjective too right the truth is not one singular thing your truth is though you know so i think just us knowing that we whatever our truths are we need to fight for it we need to say them out loud. We need to not assume people will know. We have to show up in the way that will honor what we think our truth is. And um, 
the rest of it, just hope for the best. Cause I, I just, we can't control everybody and everything, but what we can do is control ourselves. So that's why I'm always, I always try my best to be in of integrity. That's all I can control. Like I really can't control everybody else around me, the world. I just, I say, this is who I am, hoping it makes some sort of positive change, hoping it inspires somebody, hoping somebody else gets permission to be who they are too. That's all we can do. That's all I can do with my truth. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and what does walking in integrity allow for? Like, what does that do? You know, it allows for fewer regrets. That's the first thing. That's the first most important thing. You know, I like, I want to live a life of, oh, well, I tried instead of what if I would have tried, right? Being able to look back on my journey personally and professionally and knowing like, I did everything I could. Makes me feel good. It means I don't go to sleep with regrets. I don't wake up in the middle of the night being like, man, I wish I would have done this thing taken this shot, applied for this speaking engagement, tried this campaign. I usually go to sleep thinking about what I need to do next, not what I could have done. And I think that's a gift. Mm, I love that. And, you know, I know there's a little Jesus and Joloff uh, in your life as well. Like, what is your spiritual practice or what spiritual tradition did you grow up in? I am Christian, lifelong Christian. I grew up with a praying grandmother who prayed every, every day for three hours, between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. She would wake up at 3 a.m. and literally pray for three hours. So if you were sleeping in grandma's bed that night, you're gonna be up at three because you're gonna be hearing her whispered prayers. And you'll be like, man. But I mean, I think her prayers still cover me to this day. I am a lifelong Christian who is critical of the church was critical of the the homophobia the the transphobia the the way christians have created wars on god's name i am a christian who knows that my life is ordered by a higher power um and who honors the faith of other people i think we're all worshiping the same deity anyway at the end of the day it's like a holy person who has a posse Okay, like all of them, no matter what faith you have, it's about one main deity who has like a posse of smaller ones, all valid. Okay. So, and then for those who are like, oh, I'm not a person of faith. I respect that too. Um, for me, my faith is a way to make sense of some of the chaos of the world. Um, it is a way to connect me to whatever all this whole universe is because I look at sometimes you look at like scans of the solar system and you're like that looks like an ultrasound of a body you know what I mean so they're all connected so yeah my faith I I'm a, I pray I'm not churchy though <laughs> no you're not I heard I heard you say dick on your Instagram and I was like oh okay she's in uh, it. <laughs> I, I am not churchy but I'm spiritual um so yeah that's that gist I, I love that. You know, I don't know if I mentioned that my father's actually a pastor. Um, mm-hmm, mm, mm-hmm. Yes, you're a P- uh, PK. 
all up and through it. Yes. Um, I know about that three hour prayer life. I mean, you know, in the household, not personally, but you know, just being, just <laughs> right. being amongst, um, you know, my father, um, you know, speaking of like, you know, church and, and even, you know, tradition, um, you know, I know that you are newly married. I mean, well, you know, a couple of years ago, but that's, that's generally new, uh, in the arc of one's life. How, how are you navigating, you know, not only, how did you, and how are you (laughs) navigating like the, the finding of a mate and the maintenance of being in a relationship with this incredible, you know, arc of a career and, uh, you know, quite accelerated at that. Yeah, I think it all comes down to just being intentional. You know, what do I want to pay attention to? Who do I want to give my time and energy to? So, yeah, I mean, I've been in a global pandemic for 18 months out of the, actually, for two years. Yeah, almost two years. And I've Wait, y'all were only two free months. for two months? Huh? <laughs> y'all were free for two months before it went down. Yeah, we were only married for six months before the pandemic shut down the world. Wow. You know, so it's had me having to relearn who I am, having to relearn who he is, us understanding the importance of our partnership. Because, you know, after you spend two years staring at somebody's face, you get to realize you really do like them on top of loving them. Okay. So, yeah, it's a navigation of just like the type of intention that I put into my friendships and my other relationships doubling that into my marriage because marriage is a mirror they always tell you like it's a mirror to yourself it's hard work it is like you facing the ugliest parts of yourself and having a soft place to heal all of that stuff so it's a gift in that way for sure so yeah it's it's actually fascinating I was like what are the odds that I'd get married six months before a global pandemic but I think it's it's the best type of boot camp yeah, to fortify, you know, yeah. at, so, so, so before like meeting him or maybe even in meeting him, what were those intentions? Like, what were you saying to yourself? Like, what was that bifurcation or barometer where you're like, this guy, not this guy, this guy, not this guy. I'm not giving my time to that. Like, what were you, what were you being intentional about? I think I was being intentional about my, about myself. Mm, what was that? Like, I wasn't looking out for a husband. I wasn't like, oh my God, I got to find a man to marry. I wasn't like, oh, even I, I need to find a partner. I was, the year that I met him was 2015. I was traveling to different countries solo. I was living my best life. <laughs> I was like living my best single life. So it, it wasn't even like a strategy or I was trying to manifest him. You know, everybody to my manifesting right now. We like collided and we never stop colliding so ultimately it's almost like the thing that you that you didn't realize you needed was right in front of your face being less concerned about finding it and just working on yourself and I think that year I really was working on myself and then I met him so it was like perfect timing because we even talk about like had we met six years before would we had made it probably not because we were probably not the people in the right space to even cultivate partnership in that way. So there's, I see a lot of like people in my timeline talking about manifesting marriage and stuff like that. And truly the thing I can give you, if I can give you any advice is to just work on yourself. Because if the perfect man shows up today, 
and you are not ready to do the work that it will require, if you're not ready to, for the vulnerability, if you're not ready to be told about yourself, it won't, it won't go past a particular point. Absolutely. I love that. That's the sauce. That's the sauce. You know, run your race. Run your race. That's it. Professionally and personally, it is, ne it is not a bad idea to run your race. Instead of you chasing somebody else and looking to the side and being like, oh, who's there? You will miss out if you keep doing all of this. If you just keep looking back and forth, just run your race, like run the best race you can. And then the person who can match you will be running along you and be like, oh, snap. Oh, hey, what's up? And then y'all end up at the finish line together and then all is well. Just run your race, just run your race. You know what, love it. You can you can have that. Just give me five percent. That's yours. <laughs> <laughs> Take it. Run your race. Take it and run. No pun intended. Um, well, lovey, this has been such an amazing, amazing, amazing conversation. I am one just so happy to meet you. We have many fans here on the team of the IBI. Yay. Yes, they were putting the questions together. They were like, oh, ask her this. Oh, no, no, this is part of her book. Like, I, I just want to know about, <laughs> you know, so thank you for just, you know, being a voice of not only, um, you know, humor, one, like, you know, like mm -hmm. allowing people maybe just a little bit of reprieve from like their daily life, but taking like the lessons that you've learned and just pure observation of life and putting it to paper and actually not only ideating, but sharing mm -hmm. it, right? And sharing it in ways that people not in lofty, you know, crazy you know, academia or whatever, but just like people who are just trying to show up and live their life. You know, people mm. who want to provide for themselves, people who want to provide for their kids, people who just want to be and feel free within themselves. And your words, your blog just gives them access to that, right? And in a way that's light, you know? And, and I also just want to acknowledge you for keeping those two feet on both continents right because I think and this is what I'm so excited about having you here is this 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 podcast this project is about that right it's it's about decentralizing blackness mm. it's to bring us all back in the room and to have this conversation together right so we can speak about you know Oh, you dad it over there. Oh, we have the same thing. We just call it this over here. Like, you know, this idea of like the Oriki, right? Mm. Like, I love this. I love that there's this, that there's this passion, there's this song that speaks to, you know, where we've been and who mm. we are and where we're going. What does that mean for a black community in the United States to understand? That and that's something that you've brought to us. That's something that you share. And so I just want to take this moment and thank you for doing that work and lifting those traditions over what could have been a very treacherous, what has been a very treacherous journey for many, right? And 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 landing it here so that we can find our truest self. So I just want to take that moment and thank oh you. Oh my for gosh. That. Thank you so much for those reflections. I think um, yeah, you know. Thank you for creating a podcast that just centers Blackness in this way. I think for me, 
being black is being a part of the best club ever mm. like best <laughs> club ever it's lit we got flavor we got style our music is dope we use seasons in our food it is an honor okay like to come back to the earth again as a different i'll be like make me black again please thank you thank you <laughs> one wish just make me black again like <laughs> our skin what, what? We just be out here we be out here in full effect um and so i have one last question for you um lovey what is the world that you imagine for the future man i think a world that is free a world that makes us feel free where we don't have to be in what feels like cages uh a world where we have more justice you know where no person is above another it's very idealistic world Mm. but you know that's what visions are for (laughs) so yeah let's a world that is not a dumpster fire ultimately (laughs) okay here's to putting out the dumpster fire world um also before you go where can people connect with you so people can connect with me in about many ways but one you can listen to my podcast professional troublemaker where i'm in conversation with amazing people and sometimes tackling topics by myself um you can follow me on social media i am at lovey l-u-v-v-i-e on all the platforms and uh, you can join me in my private community. It's called Love Nation. And uh, I think about it as, like think about the best business conference with the lit after parties. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love Nation, come in there and join hundreds of people who are trying to live purpose-driven lives uh, that are true. Amazing. We will connect all of that in the show notes for everyone listening. Lovey. Thank you again. Um, I'm just so excited that we got a chance to have this conversation. Have a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course, of course. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Lovey is a force to be reckoned with for sure. My laughs were so numerous and distracting, many just had to be edited out. What were some of your favorite quotes? Let us know your thoughts over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to head to www.blackimagination.com backslash survey to let us know a bit more about you, our beloved community. Never be afraid to speak up for what you believe. As the 13th century poet Hafiz said, fear is the cheapest room in the house and you deserve to live in better conditions. Stay curious and keep dreaming.